I think some of the limitations of how we've done our research so far was one of the ways that the challenge is scored historically has just been whether or not people reach the 800 gram number or not. And so basically they get credit for doing 800 grams, but nothing else. Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. As always, I'm here with E.C. Sinkowski. Every week on the show, we aim to simplify the science of nutrition, health, and fitness, cutting through the noise to focus on the principles and practices that will help you perform better, feel better, and live better. Thank you so much for tuning into the show and happy new year. How are you, EC? Wonderful. How are you doing? (laughs) Great. We are going to chat about the 800 gram challenge like we do (laughs) in every episode ultimately. Uh, But we're actually going to talk about the six year anniversary of the 800 gram challenge. So we're going to talk about where it came from, some of your rationale behind it. uh, And of course, some of the lessons that you've learned in those six years. And then we're going to close out with another hotcake which is just when I send you something that I've stumbled across on the internet and I use this as my excuse to get you to tell me what you think about it. Mm, Cool. Cool. Yeah. Let us dive into the 800 gram challenge. Let's go. Let's do for those folks, perhaps who are new, who are just starting out with us in this brand new year. uh, What's the 800 gram challenge? Give us a little bit of background. Um, We're actually not going to talk too much about all the nitty gritty here, all the rules and the do's and the don'ts, but I do think we have to set a little bit of a premise and that is to eat 800 grams by weight of the fruits and vegetables of your choice each day. doesn't matter if they're cooked, canned, frozen, or fresh, and then you continue to eat whatever else you want. And yeah, I mean, I publicly launched that idea January 7th, 2018, which is sort of a trip to think about. Um, I had to go back on my Instagram account and uh, my webpage, my first blog to sort of see what the date was there. Um, So yeah, it's officially been six years. And like you said, I want to kind of give some insight into kind of how it came to be and some of the overview. I do think we're going to stay a little bit high level, but also maybe provide some information on the background that I don't think that everyone really knows is there, and especially in terms of the science. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm excited. I want to talk about where, how it came to be, but first the name, I'm fascinated by naming of things. Did you have like 14 names that you tried first and then finally you settled on 800 gram challenge or did you just like wake up one day and you were like hashtag 800 G challenge and you were there? Yeah. The hashtag is an interesting thing. I mean, that actually probably kind of dates it a little bit now in our internet era. Uh, I mean, hashtags are still being used, but not quite the same, but the hashtag was partially there for that reason. I wanted to be able to see who was using it and kind of track on the trend that way and ultimately became part of the registered trademark. So, um, again, probably dates it a little bit, but, um, yeah, it kind of just sprung to mind uh, as we're going to talk about a, a study found the gram was significant. So, of course, that's where the number came from. And then in hindsight, I still struggle a little bit with the word challenge. Um, I still like it because it's meant to be a daily challenge. But I do think in our world of challenges and stuff like that, that people sometimes see it as this thing, this one and done idea, when in reality, it's meant to be a daily challenge in perpetuity. Um, but so yeah, that the, the name pretty much came quite quickly and I, I'm, I'm still good with it. <laughs> <laughs> We're sticking with it. Okay. Let's, let's it. go back to the beginning. Where did it, where did it come from? You, you kind of hinted at some, some science behind it. So let's, let's do the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So way, way, way before 2018, and this is back in my Boston days. So you were around, um, and, uh, this might've been like 2010, 2011, our friend Heather Bergeron, I was at their house for dinner and she just made this offhand comment while she was roasting broccoli as she often did. And that was, you can never eat enough vegetables, right? And I just was sort of thinking about it for a little bit. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, what is the number there, right? 
Because at the time, of course, I was working for CrossFit, which always had this focus on measurement and definition when talking about fitness. And so it got me thinking when she sort of had had that question of, okay, well, how do we really measure um, quality in the diet? And this was also a time when I know I wasn't really looking into the USDA guidelines with any sort of um, certainty or support. So I was getting most of my knowledge from trendy books and, and wasn't up to speed on necessarily what all of the recommendations existed at the time. But that sort of idea stayed with me for years. When somebody says they're eating clean, even though I don't love that word, we all know what it means. When somebody says they're eating clean, what does that really mean? And can we measure it? And so that was sort of uh, rattling around in my brain for some time. And I'm not sure what really spurred it. But when I was in my master's um, for nutrition, which was 2016 now, 2017 at the time, um, it kind of like came back to me as an idea. And I was reading the book, cheery one, how not to die by Michael Greger. And he has in his book, um, what he, what he calls his daily dozen. And each day you're supposed to eat a minimum of three servings of beans, one serving of berries, three servings of other fruits, one serving of cruciferous veggies. That's like broccoli or cabbage, two servings of greens, two servings of other veggies, one serving of flax seeds, one serving of nuts and seeds, one serving of herbs and spices, three servings of whole grains, five servings of beverages, one serving of exercise. So basically these 12 different things to do, his his dozen, his daily dozen, right? And so I tried it and I was thinking, okay, you know, maybe this is how I measure quality in the diet. Let me just focus on adding these things to the diet every day, not worry about calories or macros tracking, which of course was big and crossed at the time. Tried doing that and I ultimately failed. You know, I liked the focus of it. I liked the focus on this is how much quality food to eat, but the level of specificity was too much. I mean, some days I just didn't want beans, right? Some days I didn't have berries at my house. Some days I only had one type of veggie. So I liked the intention, but I just found it was really cumbersome. And and so I dropped it. Um, But I still had this idea of measuring quality stuff. So then I started playing with potassium in the diet, tracking fruits and vegetables in an app like MyFitnessPal to see how much potassium I was getting because fruits and vegetables are quite high in potassium. And so my idea was, okay, maybe we just target this one micronutrient and that's going to be our proxy for quality in the diet. That's the way we measure it. The problem there is micronutrient data in apps is often not complete. And so you might put down, okay, I ate banana, but the banana entry might not actually have potassium in it. And so at the end of the day, your number might not reflect your true consumption. So that was going on. And then I was taking a class for uh, cardiovascular disease at the time. And I think we had to look into different health recommendations to prevent cardiovascular disease. And I happened to come across this paper that was published June of 2017. So quite soon after it was published, I stumbled into it. And basically they found that at 800 grams of fruits and vegetables a day, the risk of cardiovascular disease and other diseases went down. And so it was all of that background that I'd been playing around with in my mind and measuring quality and trying these different attempts that when I read that article and saw the health risk risk reduction at 800 grams of fruits and vegetables, I immediately thought, okay, what happens if I try to eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables in my diet each day with no other rules and restrictions and see what happens? And so, of course, my 800 gram challenge was born in the summer of 2017. I want to ask you more about that research that that was part of the spark. But real quick, one of the things that that when I was starting to understand this, obviously, when our conversation started becoming more frequent and recorded, one of the things that I often got just in my head, just like backwards, is the 800 gram challenge is uh, in pursuit of, of controlling quality and not quantity. And it took me a little while to be like, wait, 
800, like we're measuring something. Why isn't this the EC's attempt at getting us to understand the qu- the quantity end of this equation? Can you just talk about why it's quality and not quantity that the 800 gram challenge is, is really kind of aiming towards? Mm. Yeah, that's a really astute point. So when you end up getting enough quality in the diet, as in the 800 gram challenge, you typically find that quantity falls in line. And that's sort of the magic of the 800 gram challenge when it, when it works out, when you fill up on these whole unprocessed foods, you don't have enough room for too many chips and cookies and all of that stuff. And so we, I sort of found that, I think we collectively sort of found that in the CrossFit community that when people started shifting their priority to quality, they found that they leaned out, performance improved, health markers improved, all of that stuff. But the vice versa didn't seem to work as well, that when you just focus on quantity, it doesn't seem to be as sustainable as health promoting all of that stuff. And so I definitely at that time historically had a hefty bias towards focusing on quality first. And ultimately now I see how important it is to get quantity in line. But I do think that you can almost kill two birds with one stone when you go the quality to quantity right route versus the vice versa, even though it's technically possible. Yeah. Love that. Okay. So let's, let's get back to that research that you mentioned. Um, some folks might actually be surprised that you didn't just pull this number <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. out of your kitchen. Um, let's talk more about like, what was that study? What did they find? Why was that such a spark for you in maybe connecting these dots that were until that moment, a little bit disconnected? Yeah. Yeah. People are often surprised, like, oh, there's research for this. Um, Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I believe so strongly that 800 grams is a good number was exactly because it wasn't this thing that I came up with on my own. It wasn't like, oh, cool. I created this really wacky diet and now I think everybody else should do it. And I think there's a lot of trendy diets out there that are that, that the person starts with their self-experience and then they go outward from there. And this is sort of the reverse. I mean, the number came from an observational study, i.e. we were observing (laughs) what people were already eating. And I'll talk about this in a a minute too, but they weren't observing a population of like six feet muscular CrossFitters. It's a really broad, big general population. And so the point is here really is that tens of thousands of people were already living and doing this number, right? It's not just some sort of anecdotal experience of my own. So this study that it came from, again, linked in the show notes, type of study that we talk about all the time, it's a systematic review and a meta-analysis, meaning, again, they were pulling together research from lots of different studies on the same topic, and they actually pulled together research from 95 different studies. So we're, we're talking about a pretty good sample size, and it's 95 different observational perspective studies, meaning... Yes, it's an observational study. We can't prove causation, but they took each of these 95 different studies. It was taking a group of people and then they followed them over time to see what happened to them in terms of death or disease. And so they're looking at, okay, this group of people, how many fruits and vegetables are they eating? And then what happens to them in terms of, do they get cardiovascular disease? Do they get cancer? And when do they die? And and they looked at all causes of dying or all cause mortality. They weren't just looking at, did they die of cardiovascular disease and, and cancer? And so, again, combining the research from 95 different studies, the sample size for these endpoints ended up being about 900,000 people, right? So this is this is pretty darn good. And the studies, out of the 95 studies, 44 were from Europe, 26 were from the US, 20 from Asia, 5 from Australia. Yes, we are missing Africa there, and we are missing South America there. But of course, this is 
based on what studies are out there and, and certainly better than only looking at, you know, one U.S. study or something like that. And lo and behold, what do they find? The lowest risk was observed for people that ate 800 grams of fruits and vegetables a day. But they didn't, they find that that risk improvement kind of dropped off after that. So it wasn't that this more is always better phenomenon. It also turns out I like to make the nuance that cancer risk had the highest decrease at 600 grams, that eating 800 grams didn't further decrease cancer risk. But since the risk of of cardiovascular disease went down to 800 grams and the risk of death also went down 800 grams, it made sense in my mind, okay, I'm not going to stop at 600 grams. We obviously want to protect those things. (laughs) Let's protect, you know, death. So I'm going to go all the way to 800 grams in the recommendation. And just to be clear about what kind of risk reductions we're talking about, there's a 28% risk reduction for cardiovascular disease at 800 grams. There was a 14% risk reduction in terms of getting cancer at 600 grams. And then a 31% risk reduction for all causes of dying at 800 gram consumption, which these percentages in terms of diet related changes are about as good as you're going to get. They're not as good as being able to change your genetics by any means, but in terms of diet related changes, this is, this is very good for a diet change to be able to make that risk reduction. Got it. Okay. So if I have the chronology right, there was somewhere in the range of like six months between reading the study and the first time you sort of talked about it. So, and you'd mentioned you, you, the study kind of triggered your own personal 800 gram challenge, which I assume means like, well, okay, let's see if this works. Um, what were those months like it, between the study and saying, you know what, guys, I think I'm onto something here. Yeah. I think, you know, I thought it was a good idea, but you got to test it. <laughs> you got to actually see like, okay, how does this really play out before I'm going to make this a diet recommendation? And certainly by that point, I had been around nutrition in the CrossFit space long enough. I knew I had to be ready for all the questions. You know, what does this, <laughs> what does this look like? What counts and doesn't? What happens when? So that's what I was doing for those six months is I really tested it um, to, to kind of answer those questions and to see if it was really doable and livable for me. And how hard was it, right? Um, And for me, what I found was that the real challenge was the long-term consistency of it. You know, no single day was that difficult, but when I strung together the six months of it, I realized, wow, okay, my diet is better overall because of this target. Also during that time, like I said, I wanted to look at kind of the calories and the macros um, represented in 800 grams. And in fact, I called up my first original kind of spreadsheet of doing the diet analysis of uh, my 800 gram challenge that summer. And the numbers are still exactly the same, even after all these years of looking at more sample sizes, that 800 grams of mixed fruits and vegetables ends up being about four to 500 calories, about 100 grams of carbs, and about 15 to 20 grams of fibers are kind of a good guideline. Now, of course, you can slant that to your preferences. If you're going to do your 800 gram wall avocado, it's actually going to be 1300 calories. If you do all broccoli, it might only be 200 calories. But I I think when we start thinking about those extremes, that's when you sort of have to ask yourself who's really doing this. You know, some of these extreme wacky ideas fall apart because of sustainability, (laughs) which is nice. Um, So those numbers I gave are are quite, quite good and really do hold up for a good mix of just fruits and vegetables. The other stuff that I wanted to do during that time was, hey, what other recommendations already exist out there? You know, I'm not the first person to recommend fruits and veggies. You know, what other people say about this and is this in line with other recommendations? And so I did go to the USDA recommendations at that time, um, which are still pretty much consistent with what they say today. The real problem with the USDA recommendations, in my opinion, is just how complicated it is for life. Um, 
they, you know, have their food groups. And so if you were to look at how many fruits and vegetables to eat today, you would have six different categories to track. And each of those six categories to track, you have a different target to hit. And I get what they're trying to do. It's kind of like the how not to die book. It's like, hey, when you eat lots of different whole foods, you get lots of different vitamins and minerals, you get different fiber types, different phytochemicals. Like I love the intention. It gives all of this structure to try to make sure that people hit all of these really important endpoints, all the different vitamins and minerals. Like I get the intention, but when I read stuff like that, I'm, <laughs> I'm always wondering, have you guys spent like any dinner in any house at dinner time with a family or any business person traveling in an airport? Like, <laughs> it's just like so out of touch um, with how life goes in my opinion. Um, and so so yeah, so that that was interesting to me that like, okay, I looked at their recommendations and when I broke it down and I built my own plates for the USDA, for example, I found that it was about 700 grams. So I was like, okay, cool. The 800 gram challenge is right there. Maybe a little bit more or whatever based on whatever, but pretty much right there. So that was cool to see that it wasn't, wasn't totally outlandish. I think though, then the distinction of something like the 800 gram challenge from the USDA is just that livable nature of it, right? Yes, we still have a target to hit. Yes, it's still in the ballpark of what other research says is valid and good, but it's really made really simple by having a single number. It's not broken down into all this other stuff. And then finally, the other thing that I had to um, do during this time was really come up with the rules around it. Like I mentioned, when you put something out in the space, especially diet related, you best be ready for every question under the sun. And, <laughs> you know, and the study, when they did it, they weren't thinking about this as like, okay, we're going to make this in a, as a diet for people. They were thinking about this as how do we measure risk reduction and are the guidelines about fruits and vegetables really adequate for protection of health? So really a quantitative analysis where I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to go tell people to eat this. Right. And so this is where my 800 gram challenge and the research start to kind of move apart with me saying, okay, it doesn't matter which fruits and vegetables you eat. And okay, it doesn't matter if it's cooked, canned or frozen or fresh. And oh, guess what? Beans are included because they didn't include those. Like these are all things that where the diet approach starts to be different from the research but it was me kind of then applying my knowledge about, okay, what is the nutrient composition of this? What does sustainability look like? Why are beans included? Oh, guess what? Because no one's overeating black beans. All of these things that then I started fleshing out the rules from kind of the basic premise there. So that that's all that kind of went into um, those six months. And again, like I said, of also testing it myself and making sure I could do it. <laughs> I love that because I can... I, I remember what that time was like and you're and you're spot on. If you were to present this, you would just the like the people who were paying attention at that time were like, okay, first response is I'm cynical, you're wrong, and I'm gonna <laughs> and I'm gonna yeah. poke holes in this. And so I totally get like you're like stealing yourself for all of the questions on whether the, the message boards or wherever else they would have come from. I've um, worked enough CrossFit seminars. Exactly. I, was, I was ready. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So I would love to know, like in those six years, starting maybe from those initial days, like talk to us a little bit, like what are the most popular questions? What are the questions that keep coming regardless of how many podcast episodes we put out in the world? Like what are the most popular questions uh, that folks have about the 800 gram challenge? Yeah. The one that I really want to highlight here as the most popular question, and it really it truly is, is why is there one number for everyone? Um, which I think is a great question. I mean, I'm so, when we talk about topics, I'm always like, oh, it's never one thing and biological variation and thinking about all this different stuff that I can understand that, you know, 
how is she just saying that as a five, two female, I'm supposed to be eating the same number as a six foot male. Right. Michelle um, and I did the 800 gram challenge yeah. like last month, just cause we were okay. like, let's do it. And that was her first question first too. Question. She was like, wait, but so I'm going to eat the same amount that you are, you big, tall, you know, big, right. tall stinker. And I was like, yep. EC says 800, you're eating 800. <laughs> I'll ask for her, uh, final thoughts off air. Um, yeah. And it is, one number. One number is a little in quotes there. It is one number for a few reasons, but the first is because that's what the study observed. You know, a 900,000 person population who I assure you were not all tall male CrossFitters, you know, it's a large cross section of different countries, large cross section of people. We're going to have people in there who are small. We're going to have people in there who are sedentary, and they, the people who had the highest risk reduction were at 800 grams. And, and so to me, it's like, okay, that's the baseline. That's the baseline number from which larger and more active people can scale up. And I do find that lots of people actually end up averaging more than that. And the sanity check for me on that is not just, okay, yeah, there's research documenting that this is happening by tens and tens of thousands of people, but also the sanity check in the sense of the calories. When we look at the calories and we find that they're four to 500 calories, even if you include different fruit or potato and then some veggies and stuff like that, that's even a fraction of calories for our smallest caloric budgets, right? Such that it it makes it quite easy for me to say that 800 grams is the baseline. And then again, larger and more active people can't scale up. And what I encourage people there is if you're already routinely over 800 and it fits within your caloric needs, go ahead. I just don't, didn't want people to develop this more is better idea. Well, okay. Well, if 800 is good, 1600 is better. It's like, okay, (laughs) no. So I didn't want to promote that, but this is definitely kind of my cutoff point. Now I did say one number in quotes. I certainly understand from a nutritional point of view, it is entirely possible that other numbers work specifically lower numbers work. And, um, that they can be just fine. Maybe they don't have as many fruits and vegetables, but they have a bunch of whole grains and they have a bunch of nuts such that the overall caloric needs are perfect and all of that stuff. I understand that. What I will say though, is I've found, especially now in application over the years, you know, especially my master class is that 800 grams has been a really good sweet spot. And there's almost kind of, I don't know to call it a story arc or something like that in my master class, but sometimes we'll start off with the 800 gram challenge and people who are kind of shy of the target or questioning the target. um, I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, settle at a lower number. We'll see where you fall. We'll keep going. Don't worry. And it's true that all of that stuff is true. But by the time we get to the end, by the time we've added in the other pillars of protein and calories, a lot of people come back to like, oh, wow, 800 grams is a really great number. It kind of sets up the rest of the pieces to fall in place. It becomes a really sound anchor to get the other pieces right. And so I know that other numbers are possible, but I think one of the reasons why it becomes such a good sweet spot and why it becomes such a good anchor is because of our modern food environment. It's so easy to overeat so quickly on things that you don't necessarily eat, you know, 12 donuts at once or whatever. It's so easy to have just bites here and there that really add up fast that when we have a large enough volume, which which as I consider this 800 gram, the sweet spot, it really does start to tip the balance for people such that they get that quantity in the line easier than let's say if they settle at 500 grams or 600 grams. Mm-hmm. Have you found in the, in the masterclass and, and elsewhere that 
that most people, most of the time, the 800 grams is like a reach in terms of like, oh, I'm not there yet. I've got to push towards that. In other words, like, have you found a lot of people to be like, oh yeah, I get like, once you, once they start actually measuring on a consistent basis, like, oh yeah, I get this all the time. It's a piece of cake. No pun intended. But like, are most people below that 800 gram uh, mark once they start measuring and actually get a sense of it? That's hard to say. I mean, obviously people who come to my masterclass have often heard about it before. So sometimes I think I am working with a biased population. Certainly some people are already hitting it, but I do think this is actually something that I was, uh, wanted to mention on, um, you know, maybe people overlook it. I think sometimes people think their diet is better than it is. And now when we actually put pen to paper and measure our quantity of fruits and vegetables, we often realize we aren't quite where we thought we were. And again, that 800 gram number, it's, it's not a gimme. It doesn't just come together. You definitely have to think about it. So it is, ends up being a stretch for most people, but it's not like 1200 grams, which just becomes outlandish for, for people. So there is this interesting thing of like, okay, it's a little bit of a reach, but it's a doable reach. Yeah. Love that. Okay. So, uh, as we often talk about here, the point of fruits and vegetables, the point of all of these things, it's not just to do the thing. It's not to like check the box and cross off on the post-it note that you hit it. The point is the outcomes that it leads to. So talk to us a little bit about what are the outcomes that you've seen working with so many people working yourself with this 800 gram challenge or this 800 gram mark? Yeah, um, definitely the outcomes that we talk about all the time in terms of weight, health, and performance. Now, when I first launched it, the overwhelming response I got from people was that they were feeling better, which, as you know, I don't really love that language because I think it's a little ambiguous, but that feeling better was most often combined with, I feel better in workouts, I have more energy, I am hitting performance, um, new PRs, and or I also have better recovery to hit the next workout a little bit harder. And this sort of makes sense. I think people forget that all of those micronutrients that we get from fruits and vegetables are involved in the production of energy. So it's not just about getting enough carbs to have energy. It's about also having the micronutrients produce energy. And then even things like muscle growth, muscle strength, muscle repair, these require micronutrients too. They don't just require protein. And so, you know, when I was hearing things about increased performance, um, it wasn't that surprising given the increase in quality in the diet. I also though wonder again, did I just have a biased audience because it was launched within a CrossFit population? <laughs> so was I mostly hearing that because, you know, the first place it was launched was at CrossFit Roots. And of course, my audience was mostly CrossFitters. So that was definitely the first initial response. And then other, those other outcomes have followed as well. Now, now I'll hear about weight loss with it. I'll hear about people's blood markers, whether or not that's um, blood pressure or fasting glucose or stuff like that. I think perhaps what I was most surprised by was the mental improvements, the mental health aspect improvements of it. You know, people really describe the diet as mentally freeing it because it, it really flips the script on a kind of our classic diet culture of eliminate all these foods and you can't have everything. And so it really flips the script on that. In full disclosure, I knew I wasn't restricting anything when I launched the diet. I knew it had an additive approach, but I don't think I really understood how positive that would be for people. So that that's been pretty cool to hear because as much as, you know, that might be very ambiguous to say, okay, I have a better relationship with food or I have this, um, you know, mental unlock around food that ultimately leads to sustainability for people. So I'm, I'm thrilled with that outcome as well. Let's talk about screwing it up. How do people do that? What's the, <laughs> what's the, what's the most common way that people, you know, the common mistakes that people make? Yeah. Um, there's certainly some ones that you can make that are like 
you know, in terms of, you know, choices and calories. And I don't, I don't want to get too into that. I want to kind of stay again, high level here. I think one of the biggest mistakes is people who, when they first hear about it, aren't willing to try it because they think that's it. Mm. Like, that's all you want me to do. This this has (laughs) to be too easy. This can't be it. After all of this stuff I've read online about nutrition. (laughs) It's not painful enough. That doesn't seem painful painful enough. enough. You haven't addressed my macros. You haven't told me my total (laughs) calories. Like, come on, lady. Like, come on, you got to give me something else. And it actually reminds me a little bit of just our initial impressions of CrossFit workouts, right? When you first saw the workout on the board, Mm. you thought that's it you know, and they're like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I know that it's not a panacea for everyone. I know that it's not the perfect solution for everybody, but it's, it's a pretty cool quote one change. I think people can make with, with ramifications that are much larger than what necessarily people expect. And so I think that's kind of a mistake is people overlook it because of its simplicity. Um, I think the other one is, people, and I think we kind of mentioned this with the, with the masterclasses, I think sometimes people will see it and like, oh, I already do that. Oh, you might not, you might not. Um, you know, our beliefs about our diet are often different than what's actually happening when we go to measure it, which is why measurement is so powerful. And I like to remind people the statistic that we say all the time, 80% of people aren't eating enough fruit, 90% of people aren't eating enough vegetables. So there's 90% chance that you're not doing the 800 gram challenge. <laughs> And so I really encourage people, if you think you're doing it, okay, put, take pen to paper and measure it, not just for two days, but measure it for at least a month when we really see, okay, when the weekends get busy, when I have travel, like, are you really doing this? And so I think that's kind of the second mistake is people just think they're doing it, but they're not. And then I think the last one we kind of hinted at with the name, the mistake is that people over embrace the challenge aspect of it. Um, Again, it was meant to be, hey, do this forever, not 30 days and I'm done. I've certainly authored 30 day programs or 30 day, you know, gym challenges. My intent with those was, Hey, we've got 30 days together. Let's build a habit. But then you go on and you continue this. It wasn't meant to be okay. At the end of 30 days, you're done. And so it kind of makes me smile. I've, I've had people tell me, Oh, I did the 800 gram challenge. And I'm always thinking, well, what are you eating now? <laughs> you right. know, like, what right. did you find that was better than fruits and vegetables? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I encourage people to think about it as like, this is a way to ensure a healthy amount of fruits and vegetables forever, which I guess is a little bit daunting of a word, but it certainly wasn't meant to be like, oh, I did it. And oh, those fruits and veggies, I'm done with that now. <laughs> Which is funny because that's actually how I said it. I was like, oh, we did the right. Instagram challenge, right. which to me just means like we actually, uh, we had a, we Measured shared it. a post-it note <laughs> right. and like we'd. That was, but it's so funny, but you're right. Cause we, we, but that's that, I mean, I mean, maybe that's the good follow-up, which is, or a, a follow-up, which is when you think about this, I know you do it, but when you encourage other people to do it, that measurement part of it, that is also part of the everydayness of it, right? It's not the, a challenge in the sense that you did it, you got through it. And then at the end, like somehow you're different from it, it is in fact, doing it is you know, kind of like in CrossFit, you put your score on the whiteboard, right? Like that is having done the workout. You did it. However you did it, you put your score on the whiteboard and now you've actually done it. In your mind, is that the same with the, whether it's post a note or MyFitnessPal or something else, you've got to be actually measuring it every day to be considered to be so that you can consider yourself actually continuing to do it. Yeah, I would say no. Um, I don't need you to have your data records in perfect order to be eating 800 grams of fruits and vegetables. But I do find that some level of daily accountability is certainly helpful to that aim, right? 
um, you know, you can eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables and the power is that you ate them. It's not that you have the record that you ate them. So there, there, there is something really interesting there that, yeah, if somebody's actually tracking it, okay, maybe they move away from tracking because now they developed enough hand eye, um, you know, estimation tech te- techniques, or maybe they just know, okay, across my meals, this is how much I eat. And so maybe they get away from measuring it a little bit. I do, and this is the same thing with tracking macros, tracking calories, tracking protein grams. I do encourage people to check in periodically because what we find is the further somebody gets away from actually measuring in a modern food environment, the further they get away from those whole food targets. You know, all of a sudden, you know, what used to be 200 grams of strawberries, now you're estimating at 400 grams. And what used to be 100 grams of ice cream, you're estimating at 25 grams of ice cream. It tends to go in the wrong way. We tend to start underestimating our processed food consumption and overestimating our whole food consumption. And so I totally hear you that I don't necessarily need everyone to turn in their post-it note every day, um, but it can help with accountability and especially periodically to come back to it, to recalibrate And our modern food environment is super useful. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the, to me, the biggest value is like doing it, measuring it and then like, Oh yeah. inch yourself back in the right, right direction. <laughs> right. So to me, that's that, that has always been really useful to me when I like really set settle into like, okay, 30 days of post-it notes on the, yeah. on the refrigerator. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about what, uh, I mean, you you say it all the time. You're the first to say it. Like this isn't, and you said today, this isn't a panacea. Doesn't fix everything. It's not perfect. Um, what are the some of the drawbacks drawbacks that you've seen as people, as you yourself, and as other folks have done the 800 gram challenge? What should we be looking out for? If perhaps we haven't fully committed to it yet. Yeah, it's not a panacea because it doesn't control the whole diet. You know, it's continue to eat whatever else you want. And a lot of the goals that people have, even fitness related, because fitness related is often tied to body composition come down to getting calories and macros right. And so with this, we're focusing on an aspect of the diet. And like we kind of said in the beginning, I find that it's easier to get total quantity in line when we go through quality, but that doesn't mean that we've totally gotten quantity right. And so unfortunately, calories are still a thing, (laughs) even though we're not counting them in the 800 gram challenge. And so there's, that's a drawback. We're not really controlling everything. I think the other drawback, um, I don't, I don't know how to get around this one, but it, it would be true of a lot of diets. It's sort of a check the box mentality. The, oh, I got my 800 grams in, so this means I can eat whatever I want. Well, okay, the whatever I want's the problem, not the fact that you did the 800 grams. So, so it can kind of create that behavior. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other thing is, I don't know if I'd call this a drawback, but I sometimes think that people think that's you know, my, my entire nutrition message. I I think my entire nutrition message is better encapsulated by my 10 principles of nutrition, which I then sort of enact with the three pillars method. Um, But the 800 gram challenge is just a part of that. Now, I think it's a really good part of that, but it's just a part of that. And, you know, in full disclosure, I'm happily happy to be known (laughs) as the 800 gram challenge lady. I think it's a, I think it's a great addition to the nutrition space and I think it's got some really great effects. So this isn't necessarily a drawback, but I, I do would like people to know that there's things beyond the 800 gram challenge that I think are really useful for people to know, to be able to get the outcomes that they want. Yep. Agreed. Um, I want to, before we wrap up, I want to, you've mentioned it before, I can't remember what episode there's been, you've been in the midst of, and tell us where we are with it, but like some amount of, of research being done on the 800 gram challenge itself. Is there anything worth updating us on? Um, how, again, however it currently stands. Yeah. Thank you for that. There's been, we've done two clinical trials. Um, 
at University of North Texas. And one was with what we would call a gen pop um, general population. And another one was with multiple sclerosis. And they were small studies. Uh, I think one was on the order of 12-ish participants and another one was on the order of 16 participants. So believe me, I understand the challenges of research and the challenges <laughs> of getting people enrolled in different studies and how difficult it is to get these really large sample sizes. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the results, basically they did sort of four weeks of kind of educational material as well as making diet changes. And then they did another four weeks of moving on to just maintaining as many diet changes as they can. And what we found with the data so far is there weren't a ton of drastic changes in terms of their metabolic health, whether or not that was, let's say, a fasting glucose or let's say a body composition or a weight. We did find no surprise that um, how much healthy food they were eating went up. I think some of the limitations of how we've done our research so far was one of the ways that the challenge is scored um, historically has just been whether or not people reach the 800 gram number or not. And so basically they get credit for doing 800 grams, but nothing else. When I think if we drill down and look at, okay, this, this person was eating 600 grams this day and this they, they ate 500 and we start to look at levels of adherence, I think we're going to probably be able to tease out greater effects than what we found so far. Because again, if somebody eats, eats 700 grams, they get they basically look like they did nothing that day in terms of how the analysis has been run so far. So that's something that I think if there's further trials moving forward, that we're actually going to want to look at individual consumption, because I think that's going to have more of an effect than just kind of this yes, no cutoff. But so far, these were really kind of preliminary studies to try to demonstrate the feasibility of it. And, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully we're going to do some more in... Um, larger populations. And again, with some of these improvements to see if we can drive some uh, real biological change. Love it. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to add before we wrap this chat up about the uh, anniversary of the 800 gram challenge? Anything else you want to make sure we hit on? Yeah, I think I just wanted to mention that I, when I put the idea out there, it's been freely available since the inception of it. The rules have always been on my website. They still are. Um, you can use it for personal use in that way. I've, obviously, I've talked about it backwards and forwards on social media and this podcast. And so I would love for people to adopt it on their own and to make it part of their daily diet. It is a registered trademark. And so what I mean by that or what that means is that you can't run 800 gram challenge programs. You can't run 800 challenges at your gym without me. Um, it is That is my product to license. And that mostly now occurs by being an affiliated coach. So it'd kind of come through my coach's masterclass. But for individuals, again, there's lots of free info on my website. And then we also have that 100, over 100 page ebook on just the 800 gram challenge, um, which goes into a lot of the nitty gritty that we didn't do here, you know, organic or not, how do I track? How do I eat out? All of the frequently asked questions of the nitty gritty are really encapsulated there. So if uh, you want even more information beyond this and the website, that's where to go next. Okay, cool. Speaking of that, sort of, you have something new, a, a companion to that 800 gram challenge ebook. So there's 800 gram challenge ebook, there's a lazy macros ebook, and now there is an, tell me if this is the right title, the anti cookbook, cookbook yes. ebook. Tell me what it's called. <laughs> Just the anti-cookbook. And, um, <laughs> the anti okay, what is that? Yeah. Yeah, so it's simple meal ideas to achieve the 800-gram challenge and also lazy macros, which is then the protein target. Um, and the reason it was named the anti-cookbook is because it's not really about cooking. It's not, do not buy this if you are looking for, you know, how to prepare steak well. And do not buy this if you want really intricate spice combinations 
This is uh, what I call slap it together meals, you know, less than five minutes prep, get something together that's healthy and easy to do. So I think there's 30 plus different ideas in it um, with some different variations. And so that is now available. I am absolutely on team slap it together. (laughs) No question. That's the only way to be, I think. I mean, everyone's busy, right? So how else are we doing? Now, some people love cooking. This is not your book. If you love cooking, this is not your book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We will put a link directly to the anti-cookbook in the show notes. So check it out. Uh, um, okay. Let us jump into, uh, our hotcake today. Hotcake is just when I, again, I said this at the top, I come across something on the internet and I'm like, I, yeah, I wonder what EC thinks about this. And so this is an article from, it is a news publication called Axios. And the title of the article is pickles, halloumi and camel milk, uh, camel milk. That's harder to say than I thought. Camel milk. What we'll be eating in 2024. And so this is just a look at, some of what uh, apparently there are people whose job or part of their job is to like predict the what we're going to be eating and buying and what restaurants will be serving kind of in the year to come and obviously they do this in a in a sort of a marketing way so that they can kind of get out ahead of these things and so i'm just going to read a little bit from the top which just says ultra processed food or uh, what what these folks are saying what these what these reports are saying ultra processed food soon to be known uh, more widely as uh, by its acronym UPF is poised to become the new quote unquote junk food. Um, the mental, the market research firm says in the, in its 2024 food trends report. Uh, and this is a quote starting in 2024, more consumers will be come more aware of different levels of processing for media reports, regulations, and voluntary on pack labels. This will encourage them to, to consider processing levels when choosing food and drink. And so that was where I just wanted to start this conversation, which is, do you feel like that's true? I mean, we just, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about whether sugar was addicting in processed food and et cetera. And part of where we ended with that that conversation was just like the environment that we live in and perhaps what those regulatory uh, um, standards might need to be so that we are eating less of these things. So this to me is really interesting because what this is saying is like culture is going to decide that ultra processed food is bad. And and based on vibes only, we will stop eating these things. So that was the first place I was like, oh, I wonder if that's the solution. It's just like in the same way that culture decided at some point that cigarettes were bad and that driving drunk were bad. And now we live in a time where certainly those things are still happening, but like it's less cool to drive drunk and smoke cigarettes than it was in the 80s. Do you think that's the solution here is like in 15 or 20 years, like we're going to look at people eating donuts and be like, I can't believe he's still eating donuts. Right. That that's interesting. That might, um, that might be a powerful way to change a cultural stigma. Um, for sure. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. Oh man. I do think there's a lot of trends in nutrition that, you know, aren't really going to take the general mass market by storm. It's kind of like, I don't know, I guess even like organic, you know, stuff like that, that might just fall under the umbrella of kind of the worried well, that's a trend versus necessarily the mass market. Um, it's going to be really hard to overcome even with cu- cultural stigma, again, that food environment, as well as the addictive nature of them. I think the only really way we overcame the cigarettes was lo- legislation, really, Really, I mean, if it had still been so accessible, it'd be interesting to know, you know, how mu- how much would that change? And then, you know, driving drunk or or even smoking, there was also 
because of the legislation, huge amounts of education around them, you know, huge campaigns to, you know, to stop doing those things and education. So I don't know that just a food trend is going to be enough, is going to be enough to change the cultural stigma. Maybe with legislation, it can be. Uh, and I think ultimately that would be good, but I don't think that just 2024 on its own of some people being like, oh, this is a junk food is going to do it. I mean, we've been calling it junk food forever <laughs> in some ways, right? <laughs> so it's still it's still here and it's still selling quite well. <laughs> it is interesting, your point though, that it's never, it's, you know, we talk about this, it's never one thing. And to your point, it was like, it's, it's legislation and regulation, education and culture. And it's not any one of those things doing the full job to the degree that it has been done. And probably going forward will not also be one of these things happening. And suddenly we'll be in a place where I think the number is somewhere in like 50% of our caloric intake is ultra processed foods, right? Like it's not going to be just TikTok doing it. It's probably not going to just be regulation because those things probably travel together. So it's interesting to your point is like, it is, it sort of has to be this, this full court press all moving in the same direction of we've got to we've got to eat less of this and we need in order to do that we need it to be far less pervasive in our everyday lives. Yeah, I mean think about it if they if they uh you know legislate against it but there's no regulations about where it's sold, okay, what does that do? And then if it, we legislate and we regulate and then people aren't educated, then we might have an uproar of like, you're taking away my liberties, which in some sense, there's some truth there, but there's also like, okay, there's a reason why we're restricting, right? <laughs> and then, yeah, if it's still considered like really healthy or the cool thing to do, it's just going to become like the black market. So multi-prong approach for sure. Yeah. Seatbelts are another example that yeah, just popped in my head about I think it's like a great... all of these things traveling together. Like it is now... Like you'd be, you, you're looked at sideways if like you're whatever, you're not wearing a seatbelt or certainly like your kid's not in a car seat, like all of these things that when we were growing up was like, that wasn't, that was not how it was. Like, I remember, Oh, I know. I remember just the like stories. sitting in the back seat of the van and just being like six and like, that's normal. That was, but now it's like a, you know, like my kid's going to be in car seats till he's 14. I think. I know. I laid on the back floor of the car. Oh my yeah, God. Exactly. exactly. So again, all of those things traveled together. Like it, the incentives, the, the, the incentives were, were on different levels, right? Legal, monetary, cultural, like all of these incentives started pushing towards the quote unquote better behavior or the, the better for us behavior. Um, so super interesting. I think that's, I think that's really interesting and a good point. The other thing I just wanted to talk about was maybe just like, food trends in general. And one of the things in the article that says, it says food trends now erupt faster than ever and can fade just as quickly due to TikTok and Instagram. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this. It's like, do you see this too? That there are, there are um, like literally like, like kinds of foods that are like popular. Like the first thing that is avocado toast, which I know is like four years old now, but like how prevalent are those in your mind in terms of what, like what you've seen? Do people care about those? I guess is the question. I think they do. I mean, TikTok, I think social media certainly accelerates the trend so much faster and really makes it catch on more than it would in any other media. I don't really do much on TikTok, so I feel like I stay out of that. And I also don't follow a lot of people that post trends on Instagram or Facebook. So I think in my mind, I'm like, who's getting really wound up about, you know, camel milk? But <laughs> Camel milk, <laughs> you know. yeah. 
I digress. I mean, I guess it's a big thing and we're all preparing for 2024. You know, I think there's just a little bit of, um, I, on one hand, I kind of um, am cynical of it because, you know, we always have to make the same things new again and enticing and that's how marketing works. And I also think that there's something though very real about it is we don't like to eat the same things in perpetuity forever. So if camel milk, you know, replaces somebody's other milk and it has the same nutritional qualities, but they just like the taste a little bit better. I'm like, okay, well, fine enough. I mean, that's a great way for sustainability. So sometimes when I'm like these food trends or just get a little bit silly, I'm like, you know, laugh at them. But on the other hand, some of them are good. Some of them are fine. They're fine new additions and people like the taste. I, I don't think any of them are going to be a magic bullet. I don't think any of us are going to crack the nutrition code by, you know, now having more halloumi cheese in our diet as much as I wish that was true. But if it just provides some variety for people in the context of their oval diet, I mean, it's it's pretty harmless. <laughs> why it's funny to me or why partly it's funny to me is and so very much in the context of what we talk about here all the time, which is like fruits and vegetables and protein and whole food. Like it's, it is not a source to me for entertainment, which is like what happens when you start like thinking about these as trends, which is like, oh, that's fun. I'm going to try that. And I know I'm biased because it's, because it's me and whatever, but like, that to me is the thing I think about. I was like, why, why are you trying so hard to make your lunch on trend? Just have the salad. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I do think there's a lot of that. Now, culturally, in terms of things to do, food is up there in terms of try a new place. Go, I mean, I think they mentioned like um, espresso martinis are back around. So culturally going out and trying a new food or a place certainly gives us something to do that can have some great benefits of, you know, the social connection, the relaxation, blah, blah, blah. But I do think you're right that putting a lot of... Um, emotion, even if that's fun emotion into our food experience, I think sets us up to be seeking those dopamine rewarding foods more so than the whole on processed foods that really need to be the focus. And so, yeah, if we're looking for a lot of enjoyment from our lunch, it's going to be a harder road to, you know, make the chicken salad than it is if we're like, okay, cool. I'm just getting my, my protein and my veggies for the day and I'm moving on. So I think that's a really good point. And I agree that trying not to like make nutrition always enticing part of the day actually will make it easier to be successful with. Yeah. And I think we lose sight of the fact that like, you know, part of your, what you say, the espresso martinis or whatever else, when we go out, the thing that's actually nourishing us is the company. It's the experience of being there with somebody else. And that it's not really the food. The food is just like a, just a shiny object that they put in front of us. But like you and I would have just as much fun with both of us eating a Cobb salad that we would, whatever one of these <laughs> trends are happening. And it, cause it doesn't, the food isn't the point. The food isn't the point. I think that's what we get. I think it's that that's easy to lose sight of is it's not we're going out for the espresso martini, at least we hope. It's like it's to spend the time and to make the make the connections and the relationships and all that other all those other things that are actually the things that we genuinely appreciate and that genuinely make us healthier and happier people. Totally. Anything else in this uh, in this article that popped out at you worth worth mentioning before we wrap up? We'll have to wrap up 2024 with our camel milk uh, consumption notes. <laughs> camel milk. I, get out I, your post-it, How Patrick. hard is that Trap to get? The year. How hard, Tra I don't know. How hard is camel it. milk to get? Hey, yeah, I clicked on the link in that thing. They've got massive yeah. amount of positive reviews. So there you go. All right, put it on the list. Put it on the list. All right, EC. Thank you. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. 
EC and I will be back next week for another episode of the Consistency Project Podcast. <laughs>